Fualcha, 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 Acharja Gale. This is episode 60 of the Rebel Matters podcast and today's episode is a recording of a live podcast that was made as part of the very first Cork Podcast Festival in 2019 and it's a conversation with Jenny Higgins who's been heavily involved in setting up the Gaza Women's Yoga and Circus Hub in Gaza and it was great to sit down with Jenny because she's got a fantastic personal story, has been involved in this project which is really inspirational and also has a lot of similarities with the project that I am working on myself at the minute along with our little team from Cork in setting up the Palestine Community Gym. I'll have a bit of a better update on that project itself in the coming episodes because it's kind of going full steam ahead at the minute and we've got a few big pieces of the project to put in place and once they're hopefully after going well I'll let you know what's happening with that project but it's a very exciting time for that project and kind of a pivotal time for that project as well but anyway in the meantime uh, enjoy this conversation with Jenny as I say, it's a really interesting chat and it's not often you get to chat with uh, someone who's kind of involved in something similar except Jenny's project uh, and involvement in the Gaza uh, Yoga and Circus Hub is a few years ahead of where we are with the Palestine Community Gym. So it was great to get that kind of a perspective on things as well. As usual, I've got a bit of Roald Dahl at the end of this episode. If you want a bit of story time, then just wait on until the end of the outro music at the end of the conversation with Jenny and uh, there's a bit of bit of a story time reading there for you. And just one more thing before we get stuck into the chat with Jenny. Thanks a million to everyone who's been getting in touch through the various social media platforms and listening to the podcast. There was great feedback came from the episode with Maria Gillen, who's a storyteller and who I had a great chat with as part of the last episode. Of all the episodes that we've done so far, uh, 60, when this one comes out, that episode with Maria is probably the most, the one that most people have contacted me about because there's a, there's a story there about a fox towards the end of the conversation with Maria. And loads of people got in touch to say that it really um, hit them in the field. And a few people messaged back to say that they'd listened to it a few times and we're shedding a few tears every time that they listen to it. So thanks very much everyone who got in touch and for everyone who's been listening to the podcast and supporting it all along. And thanks very much to Maria. And actually just take this opportunity to thank all the guests that, that we've had on the podcast so far. We're coming up on the 60 episodes now and we've been on the road a while. I really still love doing the podcast and love getting feedback from all of the listeners that are out there that get in touch and most of all love meeting up with new people and spending a bit of the time with the, a bit of time with the guests who are always very kind and generous with their time and their stories so Garamila Maigov he's a big bunch of legends let's get stuck into this episode with Jenny Higgins Bunsaldas
Thank you, sir. Welcome to the Rebel Matters podcast. Uh, it's the second time I've done a live episode and I'm very grateful um, to Jenny Higgins for coming down from Dublin to be our guest today. And we're going to be chatting. Um, I suppose the reason why I invited Jenny down was because she's involved in a project um, a project uh, in Gaza uh, that consists of a, a, a women's circus and a yoga hub and we're at the minute kind of involved in a, in kind of a similar project to open a community gym in Bethlehem in the West Bank so there's a bit of common ground there already and um, I think we'll have a good chat so thanks very much for coming down and also thanks for you for coming down. so um, welcome. Thanks for having me, I'm very happy to this podcast, like I think the the most challenging aspect of us doing this chat for me was the find the kind of starting point. Uh, so because it's a kind of a, a complicated issue, like what's happening right there, and and people have uh, more awareness than others of what's happening right there. And if so, maybe if it's possible that we try and maybe like uh, set the context for the the project that you have in terms of like the kind of brief, I guess, history of. Palestine and how uh, how things ended up to be how they are. Uh, so we should be finished in about six hours, and that's okay. <laughs> I think you could do a whole podcast series just on Israel and Palestine. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how much I can cover, but I can at least set the context for for Gaza and even a little bit maybe for the West Bank for the work that you do. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Um, so yeah, I suppose I once my first time that I actually ever went uh, on a trip over to Palestine, I went on this tour at a place called Hebron with uh, this organization called Breaking the Silence and their former uh, Israeli Defense Forces soldiers that now do tours of the occupied territory and talk about kind of you know uh, the violations that they saw there. But I remember him taking out this big map and he just said so when there was Abraham <laughs> so I think that like uh, that's why I said you need a whole podcast series because really you have to it's like it's so biblical like you have to go all the way back to Abraham to really get to the roots of of what's happening there and why people have the claims that they have but I suppose it's maybe easier just to start with like the context as it is today and um, because it's probably just easier than, than talking about the whys and doing it in a fair and correct way because you know there's it's it's so complicated and so I think uh, today what you have is effectively um, Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory. And the Palestinian territory consists of two parts. So you have the West Bank, which is actually east of Israel, but it's the west of the Jordan River. So that's why it's called the West Bank. And then you have Gaza, which is kind of separated from the West Bank by Israel. And Gaza is really tiny. It's a very small enclave like 42 kilometers long and 18 kilometers wide and there's about 2 million people in there and the West Bank is, is much bigger uh, but it's also divided in three parts uh, under the Oslo Accords and I won't go into the ins and outs of it but you know pretty much you have A, B and C uh, areas A and B are where the majority of uh, Palestinians live especially in areas A which are like the big cities like Bethlehem, Ramallah, uh, Nablus and then you have B, which is outside and which the Israeli military still come into. And then you have C, which is like 61% of the West Bank. And it's where all the best resources are. So the best farming land, uh, the Dead Sea, and um, quarrying, etc. And that's under full Israeli civil uh, control. 
uh, and military control, and it was supposed to have been given back to the Palestinians in 1997 under the Oslo Accords, but it still exists today as this huge part of the land, and what exists now on that is an increasing number of illegal Israeli settlements, which are, are being built on an increasing scale every single year, and uh, even most recently, the kind of current Prime Minister, but maybe not in the future, Benjamin Netanyahu, is saying he's going to annex whole sections of it to, to Israel. So currently what you have at the moment is uh, these small enclaves of cities where Palestinians are kind of forced to live um, in smaller and smaller spaces. You also have within those cities refugee camps, uh, which is where people from 1948 that lived in what's considered Israel now had to move. And also there was another war in 1967. So you have hugely densely populated cities, refugee camps within them are even more densely populated. And then in Gaza, you have 60% of the population are actually refugees, and it's the high, highest density or it's most densely populated place on earth. So all in all, what you have is an increasing, uh, what would we say, like um, de-development in Palestine. So it's actually where, you know, in the world, in development work and what NGOs look to do is increase development in different countries. In Palestine, it's actually increasingly going downwards and downwards and downwards with increasing levels of unemployment, less places to live, less opportunities for the future. And you also have uh, in Gaza an increasing humanitarian crisis, continuing wars, continuing military escalations. 90% uh, of the water is undrinkable. Uh, you have the highest unemployment rate in the world and yet the highest youth population as well. It's, it's really, you just have more and more young people that are feeling disenfranchised, that they have no future and they're completely lost in terms of what opportunities there are, you know, for the future. And to put that in the kind of like a year context, you mentioned two important years are in the history of Palestine and Israel. Like, so Israel was essentially formed in 1948, which caused the first like, mass exodus of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Then the next one was in 1967, which like, pushed more and more people into Gaza who were like, through the refugee or exiler. Mm -hmm. And then um, really like the next thing then was the Oslo Accords in the mid-90s where the people have just been constantly going in there. And to put into context a little bit, um, about, I mean, you can talk about it um, more yourself, but whenever I was over there last year in the West Bank in Bethlehem, I rang a contact in Gaza and said, right here, so I want to come over and, and see you. He's like, how long have you got? I was like, well, I'm here for two weeks. And he's like, right, he's like, it, it, you might get in in two weeks. He's like, but it might take you three months to get back out again. Yeah. And so Gaza is now known as the, as the biggest open air prison in the whole entire world. Yeah. And I think that that is an important context to set for the work that you're doing. So yeah. I guess... Maybe could you give us a little bit of an idea of like how did this end up happening? Like how are you? <laughs> yeah. How are you, are you over there working? And how how did it come about? Yeah, and and like I said, it's really hard to give an overview of what it's like in Palestine. You know, like I think the only way to do it is to actually go and see it for yourself because you really can't understand this A B C difference in Gaza, difference in the West Bank until you're you're actually physically there. You know, or understand what the checkpoints are like, and you know. It's, it's such a visceral experience, you know, you really need to have it. But I suppose one of, the, one of the differences that you really have between the West Bank and Gaza is in the West Bank, you have an ongoing military occupation. So outside of those cities, there's soldiers everywhere. Uh, there's checkpoints, there's the big wall that separates, you know, Jerusalem and the West Bank and Israel. And so uh, in some ways, it feels a little bit more tense on the ground because you have so many soldiers. But the difference with Gaza is that 
In 2005, uh, Hamas were elected into power, and since then, Israel, they did actually have settlements in Gaza, but they pulled all the Israeli settlers out, and then they completely barricaded it off, kind of like a medieval siege. But that is really what it is. So it's been under blockade since, since then, and what that blockade means is that goods, movement, everything is completely restricted in and out. So only really a handful of humanitarian workers, journalists, and diplomats actually get to go in and out of Gaza. And so, uh, yeah, my I kind of have two lives, I suppose. <laughs> so my, my first life is that I actually, uh, my, my background is I studied human rights and I work for a development NGO. And that's how I started going in and out of Gaza because I have to apply for a permit from the Israeli authorities and actually also have to get a Hamas permit. And so getting in and out of Gaza, it's like, you, you actually couldn't do it in two weeks. <laughs> I have to apply six weeks in advance. And uh, you have to be with an international organization that's actually registered in Jerusalem. So it's, it's really, really complicated. And it's like, it's a real privilege that I feel like I have and, and that I'm lucky enough to be able to continue to do work there. Um, but yeah, getting in and out, like it takes, it takes a half a day because you have to go, you have to do three different checkpoints. You have to do the Israeli one, then you have to do the Palestinian Authority one, which is the government of the Palestinian government, and then Hamas have another one. So yeah, it's, it's complicated, <laughs> to say the least. One thing that is very clear when you're flying into, you have to fly into Tel Aviv, I guess, when you're going over there, and like, Palestine aren't actually in control of their borders anymore. So that's, that's an important kind of thing that I, I maybe didn't really, really wasn't really aware of as much until I actually went there. Yeah. Um, so like, how did you end up setting up this service hub in Gaza? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, my previous job, I was working specifically on Israel and Palestine for an Irish NGO um, for Trocra. And I was going uh, in and out, because uh, Trocra is a partnership organisation, so they work only with uh, local partners on the ground, which means we don't implement anything. But we go and we visit the local organisations, mostly human rights organisations, and monitor their work, see how it's going, provide assistance. And so I was going over like twice a year, three times a year, uh, just to go and meet with the partners. And we had some in Gaza. So that was how I first started getting to go into Gaza. And I know I mentioned my, my one part of my life earlier, but my second part is that uh, I do circus. <laughs> I'm a circus teacher, specifically like aerial acrobatics. And actually, I started here in Cork because I studied for my degree in Cork. And uh, it was a way for me to make friends as a Dubliner in Cork because... Nobody likes the runners down here. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, I never really imagined that I would... It is funny, like, having this hobby because you do find these really random circus schools in different parts of the world. And this idea of social circus is a way to help, you know, women and children and people that have suffered trauma to kind of come out of their shell and reconnect is kind of growing a little bit. So, like, there's one in... In Ramallah, in the West Bank, they have a big tent. They have a really big project there. So I knew about that already, um, and I had been in touch with them. And uh, But I didn't think that there was one in Gaza. And uh, anyway, I had this local fixer that I used, um, this guy named Jimmy. And he's kind of one of these guys that, like, he can get anything you need done. You just don't ask him how he did it. <laughs> and, so, uh, and he seems to know everybody, know what's going on. So he, I was WhatsApping him, like... We were calling once a week so I could practice my Arabic. And one day he just sent me pictures of a bunch of people doing circuits in Gaza. And I was like, what? And he's like, isn't this what you do? I was like, that is what I do. No, maybe I could do that there. <laughs> so I started to try and think of ways that maybe I could get like, 
some funding together to go over and actually do it. And I asked Trover if they would help facilitate my, my permit because that's the biggest issue. And so we actually applied to Culture Ireland and I got a small Culture Ireland grant for myself and another guy, Henrik, um, a Dublin-based circus guy to go over. And this is three years ago. And uh, we put on a circus show in Gaza. So we worked with, there's like two local circus groups. And what I find really funny is that one is the Gaza circus team and the other one is the circus team for Gaza. <laughs> and of course they have a rivalry. <laughs> they fight with each other. Recently, a third one has now opened the Gaza Star team for circus. <laughs> Which I think really this is like so Palestinian. Like brand kind of stuff. So like yeah. Brian, yeah. And also it's just like I really feel like conflict just breeds conflict as well. Like and uh, but anyway, I managed to get them to work together and, and during that time I had thought because I knew that the circus school in Ramallah worked with women, that I'd be able to get some women to come and join me, you know, and do some some of the circus stuff with me. And uh, I really underestimated how difficult it would be because Gaza, the more closed off it gets, the more conservative it gets. And actually, like, what you have in the West Bank in, in these cities where internationals are going in and out as well is, like, just, you know, more, you know, you have more wealth, but you also have more, like, liberal communities, you know. Uh, but in Gaza, it's, like, it's just regressing, you know, and people, like, there's just such different ideas about what's expected from men and women and kind of for girls once they hit puberty like once they hit 14 like there's nothing for them to do like they might have done dabka classes like the traditional Palestinian dance or just loads of stuff but like there's loads of opportunities when you're a girl but once you hit puberty like that's it there's really nothing and I also didn't realize like how difficult it would be to even convince more liberal girls you know like that don't wear hijab or anything to even try it I mean like it's hard enough, you know, if I've got a beginner in Dublin to convince them to let me, like, throw them up on a trapeze, you know, without some trepidation. But there, it's, like, multiplied by, by 10, you know. It was it was really difficult. But I did manage, in the end, to get these two girls to try a little bit of it. But they only tried it after three days of watching me do it. And once we removed all the guys from the space. But then when we had our show, uh, I couldn't be in it and no women could be in it. It, it, was, it could only be men. And the audience was mixed, but that kind of gave me this idea to to go back and set up something for women, you know, and, and create a space for only women. And, and when these girls tried it for the first time, they told me, like, I wish I had a space that I could actually just do this in, that I could go to and be free, because there's just, there's so many interventions in Gaza, but there's hardly any for recreation for, for women. And as you know, like, it's so important, like, this connection between mind and body and I'm sure you understand like the benefits like physical exercise can give to you mentally you know well it's funny that you say that because one of the most common questions that uh, people have asked me about the project that we're involved in and if people have kind of come up to me like sometimes there's been a couple of times they're raging they're like, they're like <laughs> but like why are you trying to do this like uh, open up a gym or a space for like exercise or health like does that need like would you not be better off getting them some food or like medical supplies or and it, there was a couple of people who were genuinely pissed off that we were putting so much of our effort and like getting other people to help us in the raising this money to open up a place that was for recreation and I kind of was you've kind of answered that question in itself already about why you would do that but has anybody asked you that oh yeah I mean all the time like and all the jokes as well about like especially because I'm teaching people like silks or rope they're like oh you teach them to climb over the walls you know <laughs> um, really very badly bad taste jokes but yeah it, do, it does happen because I suppose there's this perception especially in Gaza 
like when people, when you think of Gaza, you just immediately envision bombed buildings, you know, kids on the street, no food. And like, that is true, you know, like, I mean, now, now, because there hasn't been a war since 2014, the bombed buildings is not, it's really not obvious. There's like two or three, you know, like, but they, they quick, like now they, they're clearing them up much quicker. But in terms of like, like, yeah, there is huge poverty, like 80% of people do rely on aid. But just because they rely on aid doesn't mean that they don't need the other things in life, you know? Uh, and you also have, like, when you have swathes of people that are just attempting to live, like, none of us would want that to be the only thing we're ever thinking about, you know? And and life is, it's, it's so hard there, and especially for women, you know, because what's happening in Palestine is there's this real crisis of masculinity where men like in a, it's quite a patriarchal society you know but like men can't provide for the family the way that they normally would you know and there's all these even in the west bank the checkpoints you know the constantly being monitored you know like the incursions the wars the soldiers and so men feel disempowered to provide for their families and so the their space of control becomes the home which is the traditional space of of the woman and so gender-based violence is then increasing and yet for men, there's loads of spaces they can go to get away from stress. Like on a Friday in Gaza, like the one the one thing that Gaza has is the beach, which is like such a source of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's such a, it's a one positive, I suppose, is that they have this, this beautiful sea and beach. I mean, it's also sad because they know when they look out to it, they can't go that way as well because it's, uh, they can only go up to three kilometers before the Israeli uh, ships will arrest them. But um, on the beach on a Friday, which is the day off, you'll have like hundreds of guys like rollerblading, horse riding, uh, doing street workout, parkour. I mean, you name it, the hobby is in Gaza already. Like they even have a half pipe, like, like everything exists for, for guys. But women, they can't even really walk out on the beach at night time. You know, like uh, even when I went, I, I went there for a whole month when I was first setting up this project. And I used to have to get, like, you know, we're so used to walking everywhere. And it's so weird for me that I couldn't, like, I can't just go out for a walk any time of the day that I want. You know, first of all, as a foreigner, because that's not really allowed in Gaza, because the security restrictions are really high. But even for my friends, they would always take taxis or drive. They would never walk, like, 20 minutes from A to B. So I used to have to get two guys to come and get me in the morning really early so I could go for a walk, you know, just to get that bit of exercise. And that was just me with a simple walk like you know and imagine if you could, can't even walk anywhere you can't do anything and for women really all there is is these is like gyms but like nobody likes a gym, gym like you know like, like a, you know not your gym but yeah <laughs> but but i mean like you know like a normal gym where there's not people helping you you know like it's like it's it's kind of isolating you know and i know that the way that you run your gym is that it's always facilitated you know and i think that that's what's important it's that connection with people you know like and that interaction that that's what matters you know you mentioned a good few things about the situation out there there are really like uh, magnified versions of what we're experiencing here ourselves in the sense that like once uh, girls hit the like mid-teens then the exercise rate drops down Mm -hmm. as general probably uh, as a society we probably trivialize the importance of our own health and that has a massive impact. Like if you look at the mental health issues that we're suffering from mm-hmm. in this country and uh, like how that's affected society in the last few years, that's a big issue. And then also, I guess the fact that, um, I mean, in general, it's probably the same here that like women oftentimes don't feel comfortable in places where like there's 
training happening in our gym. Like people come into our place every day of the week and, and express that they don't feel comfortable in a gym or uh, felt like people were watching them or kind of intimidated. So um, I guess, and I, that's kind of the sense that I get from being in Palestine as well. It is like, it's like people trying to go about their normal lives, but every problem that we have is like magnified by hundred out there in a way and everything's so intense. Yeah, and I also think Palestine really reminds me of like say Ireland 30 years ago or something, you know? Uh, it's still this slightly, it's this conservativeness, you know? Uh, also this kind of, I suppose they don't learn enough about like boys and girls mixing and there's that shyness there. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think any, like, and there's a reason why these kind of gym or social circus projects are popping up in so many places, you know? Like my idea wasn't, totally in isolation, you know, like actually in Australia, they set up a women's circus, which was for female survivors of domestic abuse, you know, and I used a lot of their methodology when writing my own proposals. And even in uh, the south of Turkey, in Afghanistan, I was in Rwanda and I ran into a circus group there, you know, like Colombia have huge ones, like nearly everywhere in the world, you'll find these social circus or recreation activities starting to pop up, you know, and I think it just shows that people are beginning to really understand that you know, poverty, inequality and trauma, it's not enough just to provide the basics in life like food and water and shelter, but that actually, you know, humans are complicated. We have more needs than that. And one of the needs we have is to find some way to shut off, to not have to think about daily life, to connect with other people, you know, connect with our own bodies. Because also I think the importance like with, with going to do like workouts or circus it's this idea of like if you feel like completely out of control in the rest of your life but yet you end up feeling like stronger and more connected with your body it gives you that sense of control you know and, and strength that maybe especially for women they would never have had you know a couple about two years ago i don't know if you remember this but there was a, a, a um t- a team of like under 14 footballers going around yeah. ireland on the wee tour yeah. they were playing in cork in the mardic <clears throat> and found out everybody's like ran down and to the match and watched it and asked them if they wanted to come to the gym afterwards yeah. for a little training session and they were like yeah i would love to so i kind of ran back to our gym and i just ran and i was like hey, we're closed we're closed <laughs> everyone just like, bring people outside for an hour and uh, they came around was 30 of them went we had a control of them for about five minutes and then they went mental and the co- yeah. their coach was just like this is the first time they've ever been in a place like this and they were, were like even they were like at the end like can we keep these tennis balls we're like giving them balls to bring away and stuff and yeah yeah no totally <laughs> it, it was class and um, but what's the overview of the of the home and the center that you have out there now uh, yeah so pretty much with the project i so after that initial trip in 2016 and i knew i wanted to set up something i suppose one benefit i probably have is that my background is in this kind of international development and charity work. So I understand my way around a, a project proposal, <laughs> which is, is both a blessing and a curse because I, I really hate doing them, but at least I have the skills to be able to do it. So I started developing. So I, I, I went and I took two trips in 2017 and at this stage I would actually changed job. So I was using my holidays <laughs> to go to Gaza, which might be a unique thing. <laughs> you know, I think maybe I'm one of the only people that's like, and now the work is a joke, you know, every time they're like, oh, you're off next week, where are you going? Are you going to Gaza? And I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm going. Um, so, yeah, so I, in 2017, I went twice, and I went spe- specifically to try and understand and research what kind of project would be best to open, because we were talking a bit about this before, like, 
you want to be really conscious of this whole like white savior kind of aspect, you know, and that's something I really, really want to be conscious about, which is that I'm not just coming in to save the day and I know what's best, you know, and I'm going to just do whatever the, whatever I think will work for people. Like I really wanted to understand from women what I could do that would benefit them and knowing that I have a specific set of skills and interests, you know, but I didn't want to just come in and open a circus space if no one wanted to actually do it, you know. So I, I first of all started meet, meeting local women's uh, organizations in Gaza to kind of, because I knew I would need one of them to manage it in order to be able to get proper like international funding from big NGOs such as like, you know, uh, the UN or, you know, any, any or one similar to Trokra. And so uh, I, I met with different ones just to talk to them about what their projects were to see which ones would fit best with the idea. And so eventually I met with this one organization called Aisha and they're a feminist women's organization that work on psychosocial support in Gaza. And I found them to be the most enthusiastic and ask the right questions and, and really understand what the idea was. And then I had some focus group discussions pretty much with women. So where we put out a call for women from all over Gaza to come, you know, just to have like a, a small roundtable discussion. And so we had women like some in hijab, some in full niqab, you know, like talking about what they would like. And so it was really positive. I mean, first of all, no one knew what the hell I was talking about when I was talking about circus, you know. Um, but then when we kind of showed the pictures and I had the two girls that had tried with me before, um, the other thing that we had to fight was this perception that you have to be young and thin to, to do sport. And the thing is, is most women over there aren't, like, you know, the, if you're not ever exercising and you're not, uh, and if you have kids and stuff, you know, they might not be so self-confident about their bodies. But trying to... I mean, anybody can pick up three juggling balls, you know, and, and try juggling. And that's that's why I like the kind of social circus side, because it's a way to get fit that's not too strenuous on the body. But once I had the two girls there, you know, talking about them trying it and showing them some pictures, they were really enthusiastic. They just never thought that this would be something they could try. And then another thing that came out a lot was yoga, that everybody would love, that they've heard lots about yoga, about the benefits, and that this would be something they'd love to try. So then in the end, the project became, uh, and it's not a catchy title, I do get that, like the Gaza Women Yoga and Circus Club. It's a bit long, but unfortunately, in terms of, like all those project proposals, they need kind of a to-the-point title. <laughs> so uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's the name. And so then I went back in January 2018 for a whole month to set up the project. And... Pretty much the idea then that came for our pilot was uh, to do a training for trainers. So there was no point me coming in, doing a few workshops and leaving again. We needed to empower a group of women to be teachers. And so I worked with, uh, I mean, luckily enough, actually, my, my aunt is a yoga teacher trainer. And she's one of the one of the most well-known ones in Dublin. And she runs one in Spain. And so she agreed to come with me and run that training. But talking to her, we were like, okay, normally to be trained to be a yoga teacher you need to have two years yoga experience. So how do we do this in a place where we have nothing, you know? And so she was like, well, let's work with qualified physiotherapists. So at least then they have some... And like the other thing I should say as well is, despite the situation sounding really awful for women in Gaza, which it can be, there's actually a really high level of education and that's because of all the UN projects. And, and so most people, most women especially, actually have university degrees that just go completely to waste. Like there's... 70% unemployment for women, it's really, like, really, really high. And most projects that look to empower women 
uh, for work or do like entrepreneurship tend to be really gendered where they teach women to do embroidery or food or dressmaking or open a dress shop, you know. And so we thought if we could take women who have qualifications and train them in something kind of related. So we uh, did a call for qualified physiotherapists to become yoga teachers. And then uh, myself and the organization Aisha discussed taking social workers or psychologists to be the social circus trainers. So we got uh, 13 uh, psychologists and social workers, and then we got 20 physiotherapists. And we ran like a, a week and a bit of uh, training for for them to become uh, teachers. I think the hardest part of that one month was not actually finding the women or doing the training for trainers. It was actually finding a suitable space. Because the one thing about finding somewhere to do recreation in Gaza is that there's not many places where women can congregate in big numbers. It just doesn't happen. And there's re- and like when I say there's a lack of social spaces for women, like I really mean it. Like. It, and it's kind of like there is a bit of a class system. So if you're from like a good family in the middle of Gaza, like you can go to different nice restaurants and smoke shisha and hang out with your friends there. But if you're from a refugee camp or out in the margins, there's not really anywhere you can go. And normally the only time they all meet up is at weddings or a henna. And a henna is like a, the equivalent of a hen party, except there's 400 women at it as opposed to like 20. <laughs> um, they're pretty they're pretty fun. They're very epic, actually. Um and so uh, what we needed to do was find a space that was accessible in a nice enough area that women could be seen going in and out of it without anyone kind of, that's the other thing in a closed off space is gossip is like rampant and that they could be seen to be going. And also that had like a, no, like if it had windows, they were like um, misted or with curtains so that people can't see in so that they could be comfortable taking their hijabs off to actually do the, the training. And that, that actually took the longest. And uh, we, did find, we did find somewhere, but actually the, the guy saw us coming as an international organization and like ripped us off on the rent. But we've actually moved now. And Aisha, the organization, like now they're so committed to the project, they actually bought a building uh, for, for it. And it's, it's amazing. It's like, so pretty much what we have now is one space um, and it has a, like two bathrooms and a kitchen and we have all the equipment there. And uh it's all closed off like but it still has some windows with nice curtains and it's it's probably the most feminine circus space i've ever been in like normally circus spaces like they're dirty <laughs> like normally you can't keep like white socks on you know um they're kind of like hippie places you know but this place you could walk around with white socks and it would be immaculate like it is so <coughs> unbelievably clean it's, it's amazing but it's actually become this space now for them to meet up even when they're not teaching and like they'll have birthday parties there and all 30 of the women now get together like and they'll put money together and in Gaza you can rent like a chalet or a swimming pool private and they'll do that and all have like a day out and it's become this community and so after the, the first pilot project where we spent six months just kind of getting them to self-practice and doing we did like three training for trainer sessions and uh, now they start to teach and they get paid to teach, which for me is the most important part. So we've been lucky enough to get funding from uh, the government of Canada and also Ireland gave us a small grant. Um, and so what happens with that money is we we pay for the transport for women from marginalised areas or refugee camps to come to the space. And then we pay the women to, to teach classes to them, you know, so... So that's kind of where, where we're operating at the moment. But there's so many things there that I I'm, trying, sorry, I'm trying to remember <laughs> to ask you about. But I think that, like, for me, one of, one of the things that, that um, was like uh, a big motivator to get involved in doing something out in Palestine was the similarity that I sensed 
to the stuff that we went through when we were kids, say in West Belfast and stuff like that. And one of the things was that that kind of phenomenon of someone parachuting in, telling the local people what to do, and then fucking off again, and then just thinking that they did a good job. And I know that's like one of the main kind of like uh, one of the main things we wanted to address in our project, and that you guys are doing as well. But another thing that um, I guess you've kind of talked about in a way there is the one big sense that I got from the organisations that helped us when we were kids in West Belfast in, in the like 80s and the 90s up to the 2000s and stuff was that there's, uh, and it's, I got the exact same sense in Palestine, is that despite everything that's going on and the oppression and the occupation and all the restrictions that they have in their day-to-day life, they still want to be able to do things for themselves. And the the kind of motto that we always had in Belfast was not have a jammy, like don't do it, don't say it, just do it. Yeah. And another, like a, a really well-known activist, Father Des Wilson from our area, always said, like, if it's out there, it's out there for you, you just have to go and do it yourself. And I think that's a really important part of the project that, that you guys have, is like, it's handing it just back to, to them, in a way. Yeah, no, totally. And like, for me, what I see is the measure of success is that I don't have to go anymore. You know, that I have this group of women that are perfectly able to train on, the, on their own, to teach on their own, to get the funding that they need and that it's a space like run by and for Palestinian women you know and and like you know we're, we're pretty close like the like the project has now been open for a year and a half I mean the one thing and you know this as well in, in Bethlehem is like there's just a there's a funding crisis like there's no money for any projects in in Palestine you know mostly partly because the US has pulled out an absolute ton of funding you know because of Trump but also because a lot of the money in the Middle East is still going towards the Syrian crisis and the refugee crisis. And you see less and less small grants spoke for, for smaller initiatives. And instead, it's like big pots of money for big multilateral institutions like the UN, which is, which is a real shame, you know, because how do you, how do you get something <coughs> like this up and running whenever, like, people, there's no, there's no, like, extra cash. Nobody has money to, to do things like this, you know? The other thing that I came out, kind of got the, the feeling about whenever I was out there is that in terms of the funding is there is, and this is maybe like going a little bit deeper than, uh, than, than we have time to in this podcast, but leading on from the Oslo Accords in the mid-90s when the Palestinian Authority was set up, like, yeah. and the years after that bred a lot of mistrust for the Palestinian people because a lot of them felt that they were sold out uh, and that the Palestinian Authority is just kind of a puppet of the Israeli government in a way and I know like I was talking to a few people out there about different projects that started off independently and then the Palestinian Authority took control of them and then kind of used it as a PR thing to justify their own existence mm-hmm. and to the, the um, to kind of give the impression that they were doing something in favour so I know that a couple of people that I spoke to were kind of reluctant to take money from the Palestinian Authority the Palestinians themselves and look, we're looking uh, like internationally and from different sources to get the funding for projects like that there yeah, I mean, I've only ever looked at international funding and also, well, Gaza exists in a very different bubble, you know, than, than some of the stuff in the West Bank, like there'd be no Palestinian Authority funding there and, I mean, you're definitely not going to take Hamas funding for a women's social service project. I don't think they would even offer it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, Gaza is run on the funding from international NGOs, you know. If, if tomorrow suddenly they couldn't get access, it would collapse. You know, and, and this is the thing about Gaza, like every year there comes these dire warnings about 
you know, like, I remember two years ago, the UN said by 2020, Gaza is unlivable. But like, we're, what, three months from 2020, you know, and people are still living, but it, it is already unlivable. Like, that's not a situation you can, you can live in, you know? And uh, the problem is, is like with less, with more insecurity about funding, then yeah, I suppose our kind of projects do kind of fall to the wayside because then it is about where do you get the funding? Like if, if the US isn't giving the money to UNRWA, the UN agency, then, you know, where are you going to get the funding for even food or water, you know? And it's, it is becoming increasingly more dire, you know, like, uh, so like actually for us now, we are trying to start thinking about models where we don't rely on international funding anymore. And so the way that we're, we're, we're thinking of moving, because now we've just finished up with our funding from, from Ireland, is kind of some sort of self-sustaining model. So the area where the, the school is, is actually located or the hub is in kind of a wealthier area of Gaza. I know it seems weird to think about wealthy areas, but there there is. <laughs> and uh, in that area, we've had we've actually had like we set up a Facebook page, and we've gotten quite a bit of media and stuff around the fact that we've this like first yoga school in Gaza, and uh, we get hundreds of messages every day from women asking about how they can take classes. And we haven't had like open classes yet. Everything has been really organised. So now what we're hoping to do, kind of from next month, is set it up that we will have classes that women can, can sign up to, like a course of six, and then that the teachers get paid a set fee from this, kind of like you would set up a, a yoga or circus place here, you know, like they get paid a set fee, except that whatever profit that we make gets put back into giving free classes. And this way we won't have to rely on international funding, I won't have to do any more of those project proposals that I really enjoy doing, and, and hopefully then that becomes, like, I also feel like it, it could be a more empowering model because it's them generating their own money to help other women, as opposed to constantly relying on international governments. And also, like, a lot of restrictions come with that funding, you know what I mean? It's not always, they don't always fund everything you want in your project, you know? So, so I feel like if we can get this up and running in a way that helps us generate enough income to give free classes, it'll be a much better model for them as well. You mentioned something there that uh, just kind of uh, sent a little spark off in my mind of something I wanted to ask you about anyway. And as I was saying, like one of the things that's, that motivated me to go over there in the first place was the sense that I got that they were maybe there's something similar happening over there that we went through in Ireland. And when I went over there, I was like, whoa, I was like, fuck, I was right. I was like, we were walking down the yeah. street and uh, I was in Hebron with, with uh, a tour guide. Who had and just to say, Hebron is the worst. Hebron, Hebron is... Hebron is Worse than Gaza. It's it. Hebron is. I'm just really quickly going to explain. It's like a small city where they divided it in half because it's where the tomb for Abraham is, and so there's 500 illegal Israeli settlers, and there's two so no maybe three soldiers for every settler, and they've just turned the old city into a ghost town, and we could walk down it, but a Palestinian can't, and that there's so many soldiers. I like can't even describe it. Like I saw a video once of a little girl. She lost her bike, went down a hill, and it went onto a road she couldn't go onto, so the soldier took it and, like, and fucked it over the, a wall. The biggest irony about Hebron is that the whole city is closed off because of a massacre that was carried out by an ex-Israeli soldier in a, in a mosque as well. But um, we were walking down one of the closed-off streets, Al-Shuala Street, with a tour guide, an Israeli tour guide, and I was talking, he was an ex-soldier as well, and I was like, here, uh, is that the parachute regiment there? He just turned around. He's like, "How did you know that?" There, I was like, "Look at the exact same uniform as the British Army. The exact same. There's so many things that are similar." Yeah. And when I went out there, I started making this list. I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "The 
the checkpoint in, uh, on Alshuada Street in Hebron is very similar to the checkpoint that we had at the start of the street into the city centre up until the 90s in Belfast. But, and I had this massive list, but then at the same time, there was, I also had a massive list of things that aren't the same. And I kind of went over there with that perception that, right, these are, it's some lot of similar stuff. And, uh, but then I went over there and I was speaking to young people in, in Bethlehem and stuff like that there. And some of the people were saying that they, they had like felt this uh, sort of sense of uh, oppression from within the Palestinian community and with, from within, from the Palestinian Authority and the governing bodies there. So the question that I wanted to ask you was, have you had resistance to this project? from within Gaza and from within the Palestinian sort of community? Uh, yeah, no, we definitely we definitely have. Um, I mean, yeah, and also just to say I agree with you on the similarities. Like, my, my whole family is from uh, Donegal and then I have aunts in Antrim as well. So the first time I went through Kalandia checkpoint, which is the biggest checkpoint between Jerusalem and Ramallah, I was like, wow, this is like mine. <laughs> like, seriously, it's like... It, it's like flashbacks you know of like someone checking under your car with a mirror and everything like it's it's really surreal and um, yeah I mean in in Gaza as I said it's quite conservative so we have to just be really careful about how we went setting it up so one of the things we just made sure was that we weren't very vocal about it you know uh, because our main thing is not even the Palestinian Authority or it's, it's Hamas you know like uh, and so we just made sure that it was it's very private we don't have any signage but then once we set up and people started to hear that we set up, we started to get a lot of media attention because people love a story like that, you know, like first yoga school opens in Gaza or, you know, like they're just really into it. Now, we always give it to the women to decide if they want to, a lot of them won't have their photograph taken. So if, if a photographer wants to come, we ask them, we had like one come and he took a few beautiful photos. And then this, we had like, we were even in the New York Times, or I think Reuters picked it up. So loads of big news agencies picked up this story. But the problem wasn't even that, it was the local media. And so I think when local news station came and did like a small interview with the manager, and then when it went up online, like we had loads of guys kind of commenting about how we were trying to convert people to Hinduism and like not to Islam and just crazy. But the one thing that was actually amazing was all the, like I still work with the guys that I do circus with and there's a core group of them that I consider really good friends and whenever I was always struggling for anything to do with the women's project like I remember we hadn't got the, pa- the space painted on time to start the first class they all came with no electricity turned the t- cameras on their phone and helped me paint the walls to get it finished for the next day like the guys have really been unbelievably supportive of this idea and what I could see then is them going in and arguing with all these people underneath, you know? So for everyone that we have that is against the project, we have someone else who's willing to fight for it, which I think is really important. And that's one thing that I felt as well, and that you, there might be this sense of overbearing oppression, for whether it's from visuals or from authorities within yeah. the Palestinian community, but at the same time, like the human, the people who are living under the oppression are all sticking together regardless of whether they're men or women or young or old. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like, they, they live under so many layers of oppression, but the main one being, like, the ongoing occupation, you know? Like, not just, you know, it's just, it's, you just, you can't, like I said, you can't imagine how it feels until you're there. And, like, Hebron is the perfect example of it. And Gaza, even though in Gaza you don't, you don't see soldiers every day, but you hear drums, like, constantly. And I even know now what drone sound means what you know like I can hear if they're high or low and 
you know, I've, I've actually been there as well, like during a really intense bombing as well. Like last year I was 200 meters from a building that got hit with three F-16s, you know, and that was probably a moment that I definitely beat my pants. <laughs> it was like really terrifying, but that was me experiencing it just once. And like, they didn't even react. And the women the next day were like, oh, I'm so sorry you had to experience that. I'm like, why are you apologizing to me? Like you didn't cause this, but like, like on top of all the stuff that I talk about, like, you know, the conservative society, everything, on top of this is literally weekly, still like airstrikes, escalations, bombings, and things that you just don't hear about in the news. Like whenever, like something as simple as, uh, like say I was there two weeks ago and you'd be doing a whole day training and all you want to do is go home and have a shower. The shower is salt water. Like it's a salty shower and you don't want that after you've been sweating because then you're just becoming more salty. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the best. And then, you know, three to four hours of electricity every day, which means you can't even operate your fridge. And uh, the sewage system doesn't work, so it runs straight out to the sea. So even though you have this beautiful sea, swimming in it might make you really sick. And like I remember two summers ago when the electricity was really bad, like two kids died from getting sick from the sea. Like it's, it's, it's just layer upon layer. And I suppose what you hope with your project in Bethlehem and what I want with my project in Gaza is to provide this space where they just don't have to think about that anymore. Because it really, it really is important to provide that opportunity. After coming back from there, it was actually the the most kind of intense period for me in terms of like trying to comprehend what was going on out there. Because when you're out there and and the West Bank isn't like that sort of like constant intensity enough in the, in the way that you're describing there, but there's a lot of stuff going on. There's soldiers everywhere. The situation can change and a, and a drop of a hat, mm-hmm. the situation can change. And it was only when I was out there, you're going around meeting people, you're talking to people, you're getting friendly with people. But it was only when I came back, like I remember I came back on Saturday or something, and I was like, right, day off on Sunday, I'm back to work on Monday. And then I woke up Monday, I was like, oh, I, I couldn't leave my room for a week. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I, wanna, I, um, I want to ask you about that in a second. But another question that I think that I started asking myself after I came back and spent a lot of time in those periods of like, after the trips that I did, uh, just sitting kind of contemplating like, why did I go out there? I was asking myself, why did I go out there? And not, not, not in the way that like I did, I, I like, not in a way that I regretted going out there at all, but I just kind of went inside myself and be like, okay, what's like, what's the actual motivation for going out there? And it was a tough question for me to answer. It took a long time for me to maybe like go back like 20 years and try and figure out what was the thing that caused me to be curious about it and go out there and then become involved in this project. And I guess that's the question that I want to ask you next is like, why did you end up doing this? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing as well about the coming back, like, uh, so I've been going out there now three times a year for like maybe four or five years. And so my boyfriend knows that like the minute I get home, he just has to leave me sit on the sofa and have a good sob for like a good hour and he just like walks away. <laughs> I'm just like, it, it's really, it's because it's when you're there and you're working and you're on it, like you, you're not thinking about it, but then the minute you come home and the dust kind of settles on what you've seen and experienced I, for me the the it's like it's that you're sad but also that you're angry and frustrated because you're just like why does no one else care or why 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 are people not doing more about this and you know I often ask myself as well like why is it that like and with my job I travel a lot you know uh, to to different countries I work on a lot of injustice like I've been to Colombia and Rwanda and 
why why is it that Palestine is always the one that sticks sticks to me a little bit more than than other situations? Like I visited indigenous communities in Colombia that have been suffering violence for generations, you know. But and I, I think for me with with Israel and Palestine, it's the stark inequality and it's the it's the increasing amount of legislation and international uh, pressure that just keeps the situation the way it is, you know, it's, it's so systematized. And so um, with that's probably why I keep going back. Um, but I mean, the reason why I started going was, was I suppose I was fortunate enough to get a job, you know, that, I mean, I studied uh, politics here in Cork and then I did my master's in human rights and I didn't initially expect that the Middle East would become my thing, but I just through a series of, I suppose, like happy coincidences, I ended up working, I, I worked for a year in the Department of Foreign Affairs in the Middle East unit. And I was working specifically on Israel and Palestine. And then when I got my job uh, with Troker, I, you know, working out there specifically, like that was my first time I ever went was with work. And I thought I knew everything because I'd been for a year in the department. And then I realized I knew absolutely nothing. And that's why I think like for people who, who are interested, like go. Like I actually just, I actually think people need to go because first of all, the West Bank doesn't get enough tourist dollars you know and even in Bethlehem you just have buses of people on pilgrimages literally get bussed into the church and then they get on a bus and they leave and they don't even realize that they've actually crossed into Palestine or into the West Bank like no clue and there's I, I met a tour guide I remember when I first went to the to the church of the nativity and there was nobody there like no one and then I was there with some people who had never been and uh, we went to go in and, and it was packed to the rafters, you know. And a guy told me that this year they had 700,000 more pilgrims than before. So there is this kind of uh, push to have more people visiting, but not to the places that need to be visited or need the money from that. And I, and like I said, if you're interested in the conflict, we do want to do more. You can read, you can look at as many websites, documentaries, etc. But it, does not give you the same sense as going there and meeting the people and Palestinians are some of the most generous, funny, lovely people you'll ever meet. Like they would give you the co-op with their back, like honestly. To um, bring that example of the church in nativity to another level, it's like that there was a massive siege there in 2000 or 2002 during the last intifada and when you go and visit the church in nativity there's no mark to say that that happened but you just need to look up a little bit and there's still bullet holes all around from, from the, where the soldiers were attacking the, the church whenever people were in there for like 40 days or something like that. Um, you know, when, you're, when you do come back or even when you're, when you're out there, do you get a sense of, like, what sense do you get from the people? Because I know I have kind of like thought about this myself in my own head, but do you get a sense of hope from the people or a sense of desperation? It depends, you know, it could really depend. I feel like in Gaza now, uh, it's worse, like, than it's ever been. And, and, like, I think when there's a war, it's almost easier because people are kind of buzzing off adrenaline, you know, they're buzzing off adrenaline, they're kind of on the move, there's so much international attention, people are getting jobs as fixers for journalists and working in the media. Um, but now, it, you know, and, and for the two years after the war, because it's been a war every two years, they were, everyone was kind of like, oh, the next war is coming, you know? But then it hasn't come. And now what we're in is this state of kind of like, like just static, pure static, where 
They feel abandoned by the international community, especially since Trump has come into power. Like Palestinians feel almost like that's it, you know. And and even with the most recent Israeli elections, like people were like, "Oh, I hope the other guy Gantz gets it," but like, no, he's he's going to be the same, you know. And it's just becoming like increasingly difficult for them to find hope, you know. Like that's not to say that they're not hopeful people, you know. Like they are positive people, but. But when you ask them about what they see for the future, it's it's really difficult, you know? And everyone will have a different... If you're from Jerusalem, you'll have a different answer than if you're from Hebron or if you're from Gaza. But in Gaza now, really what I get from people is just, like, where they don't see any future, you know? And I remember once this guy in the UN told me, like, it's the most carefully managed humanitarian situation. It'll never be where people are dying in reams on the street, you know, because that would bring too much attention. It's so... It's this like very careful managing of the ability for people to live, you know. And now what I've been seeing with like a lot of the like actually two nights ago I was in Brussels and I met a guy who I used to he was my student that first project I did, and he managed to uh, there's an, the only entrance is to Gaza the Israeli side one and then and that's really difficult and then there's one to Egypt and that was closed for like over a year but now if you pay like a bribe pretty much you can get out. And he managed to get out, go to Turkey, took a migrant boat to Greece. He's been on a Leros Island for six months, and then I just met him in Belgium, like three days ago. And like that's the and he's just like the last year of my life was hell, but now like at least I have a future, you know. And and that's really where it's at. Where I now know four guys in Leros that took the boat, you know. On that subject of. Uh, hope and I guess uh, it kind of ties into the story that when you're out there and you come back and you tell the story which is what the Palestinians want is like the main thing that they get from visitors I feel anyway is that they get the opportunity to share their story with people like international friends and then they in turn come back and um, do a podcast and then tell people about it but I, I kind of felt in a way kind of a bit of a weight of responsibility not to come back and just be like yes the Palestinian people are they're resilient and they're they're like uh, sticking together and they're fighting against the occupation and that they're going to be victorious someday and there's going to be Palestine like it's going to have its own kind of international sovereignty back one day but that's like coming back to that kind of story of hope in a way can be negative because they're fighting against like the most sophisticated army in the world and every aspect of their lives is being like uh, put down every single day which I think like personally for me is like that's where that's the importance of the type type of project that you're doing comes in because it does give people that sense of personal independence and hope and stuff like that uh, or or a sense of control over their lives in a way but at the same time like I came back and I'm like the only two ways and this is me thinking is sitting in my bedroom sometimes just having a, a deep thought about what trying to process what um I was after seeing out there is the only two ways that there's going to be an end of that situation is if they wipe out all the Palestinians or they just go and take over all the rest of the little pieces of Palestine that are left. And that, like, it, it nearly is futile to be sitting thinking about, okay, there's going to be an end of this at some stage. We need another podcast for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, another, that's another series of podcasts about what the future holds. Um, and I think that's why I often just think about, like, what's going on now because it's, it's too multifaceted and too complicated to think of, or not too complicated, but it's very difficult to, to understand what could happen in the future. But right now, regular Palestinians feel abandoned by the international community, their own government. Like the Palestinian Authority hasn't had an election in 14 years. Like Abbas has been in president for 14 years, you know, so 
regular young Palestinians don't have faith in him and don't believe that he's going to be able to deliver any sort of, you know, peace or justice for them. And then you also have, you know, increasing support sometimes for Hamas in Gaza because they're seen as the only viable option for people. And then that increasingly cuts them off from the international community. And so it's just, I suppose, sometimes the way you think about it is like, you know, the occupation is a juggernaut. So how do we stop the people from the bottom getting crushed, you know? So we're going to just start wrapping up in a second, but I guess, uh, could you maybe like tell us how people can find out more about the project? Yeah, so uh, we have a Facebook page, which posts in Arabic and in English, um, and also a website, which is www.gazawomen-yogacircus.com. Like I said, not catchy. I'm sorry for that. But, um, but yeah, and so uh, you can find out more information about the project, see some nice pictures of the women, uh, and also on the Facebook page as well. So uh, yeah, and all uh, inquiries, questions, anything, like always happy to connect with people fundraising as I know you know also maybe we could do a joint fundraiser for our two respective projects you know because I think like we're, we only found each other last week and I actually think that like it's, it's such a good opportunity to be able to cross over the two projects and maybe make a connection between like Ida refugee camp in Bethlehem which suffers a lot of the same issues as Gaza and uh, it's like one of the most tear gas places in the planet and then also like you know the the women's aspect and how we can bring that more as well. Thank you. So I just want to finish up and thank Jenny for being the guest on the podcast today and also thank the Corp Podcast Festival for giving us the opportunity to come and sit in front of us and talk today. And Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope it was interesting and not too confusing. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to fit in all those blank details about, you know, long history of uh, complicated politics. I mentioned this before to <laughs> another person that I was talking about. He was trying to explain to me about Syria last week and I know now how people people feel when I bring them to Belfast and like, okay, give me the history of quick rundown of like what the crack is in Belfast. And I was like, right, well, okay, so there was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, they turned into the Irish Republican Army, they split up into foreign provisionals, <laughs> then there was the NLA and it just goes on like that, the big massive list of sort of like yeah. short <laughs> acronyms and stuff. But um, thanks very much anyone for everyone for listening and uh, Go off and enjoy the rest of the podcast festival, whatever's left of it. Yeah, thanks. Right, a hard scale. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed being a part of the conversation with Jenny and also being a part of the podcast festival in Cork. Uh, and uh, for coming down all the way from Dublin to be my guest on that episode and all the best for all future projects to Jenny as well so Shane episode 60 is about to wrap up and as I mentioned at the start of the episode there's a bit of Roald Dahl after the outro music here so if you want a bit of story time then just stay tuned let the outro music play out and listen to a wee section of Roald Dahl's book Boy Tales of Childhood Slang of Hoyle Cardigal.
This chapter of Roald Dahl's book, Boy Tales of Childhood, is called Little Alice and the Boyle. If you want to go back to the start of this book, then go to episode 51 of the podcast here and you'll find the first chapter of this book at the end of that episode. Little Alice and the Boyle. During my third term at St. Peter's, I got the flu and was put to bed in the sick room where the dreaded matron reigned supreme. In the next bed next to mine was a seven-year-old boy called Ellis, whom I liked a lot. Ellis was there because he had an immense and angry-looking boil on the inside of his thigh. I saw it. It was as big as a plum and about the same colour. One morning, in came the doctor to examine us, and sailing along beside him was the matron. Her mountainous bosom was enclosed in a starched white envelope, and because of this she somehow reminded me of a painting I once had seen of a four-masted schooner in full canvas running before the wind. What's his temperature today? the doctor asked, pointing at me. Just over a hundred, doctor, the matron told him. He's been up here long enough, the doctor said. Send him back to school tomorrow. Then he turned to Ellis. Take off your pyjama trousers, he said. He was a very small doctor with steel-rimmed spectacles and a bald head. He frightened the life out of me. Ellis removed his pyjama trousers. The doctor bent forward and looked at the boil. Hmm, he said. That's a nasty one, isn't it? We're going to have to do something about that, aren't we, Ellis? What are you going to do, Ellis asked, trembling. Nothing for you to worry about, the doctor said. Just lie back and take no notice of me. Little Ellis lay back with his head on the pillow. The doctor had put his bag on the floor at the end of Ellis's bed and now he knelt down on the floor and opened the bag. Ellis, even when he lifted his head from the pillow, couldn't see what the doctor was doing there. He was hidden by the end of the bed, but I saw everything. I saw him take out a sort of scalpel which had a long steel handle and a small pointed blade. He crouched below the end of Ellis's bed, holding the scalpel, scalpel in his right hand. Give me a large towel, matron, he said. The matron handed him a towel. Still crouching low and hidden from little Ellis's view, by the end of the bed, the doctor unfolded the towel and spread it over the palm of his left hand. In his right hand, he held the scalpel. Ellis was frightened and suspicious. He started raising himself up on his elbows to get a better look. Lie down, Ellis, the doctor said. And even as he spoke, he bounced up from the end of the bed like a jack-in-the-box and flung the outspread towel straight into Ellis's face. Almost in the same second, he thrust his right arm forward and plunged the point of the scalpel deep into the centre of the enormous boil. He gave the blade a quick twist and then withdrew it again before the wretched boy had had time to disentangle his head from the towel. Ellis screamed. He never saw the scalpel going in and he never saw it coming out, but he felt it all right and he screamed like a stuck pig. I can see him now struggling to get the towel of his head and when he emerged the tears were streaming down his cheeks and the hu- his huge brown eyes were staring at the doctor with a look of utter and total outrage. Don't make such a fuss about nothing, the matron said. Put a dressing on it, matron, the doctor said, and with plenty of mag sulf paste. And he marched out of the room. I couldn't really blame the doctor. I thought he handled things rather cleverly. Pain was something that we were expected to endure. Anesthetics and painkilling injections were not much of a thing in those days. Dentists, in particular, never bothered with him. But I doubt very much if you would be entirely happy today if a doctor threw a towel in your face and jumped on you with a knife. Goat's Tobacco When I was about nine, the ancient half-sister got engaged to be married. The man of her choice was a young English doctor, and that summer he came with us to Norway. Romance was floating in the air like moon dust and the two lovers, for some reason we younger ones could never understand, didn't seem to be very keen on us tagging along with them. 
They went out on the boat alone, they climbed the rocks alone, they even had breakfast alone. We resented this. As a family, we'd always done everything together, and we didn't see why the ancient half-sister should suddenly decide to do things differently, even if she had become engaged. We were inclined to blame the male lover for disrupting the calm of our family life, and it was inevitable that he would have to suffer for it sooner or later. The male lover was a great pipe smoker. The disgusting, smelly pipe was never out of his mouth except when he was eating or swimming. We even began to wonder whether he removed it when he was kissing his betrothed. He gripped the stem of his pipe in the most manly fashion between his strong white teeth and kept it there while talking to you. This annoyed us. Surely it was more polite to take it out and speak properly. One day, we all went in our little motorboat to an island we'd never seen before. We'd never been to before. And for once, the ancient half-sister and the manly lover decided to come with us. We chose this particular island because we saw some goats on it. They were climbing about on the rocks and we thought it would be fun to go and visit them. But when we landed, we found that the goats were totally wild and we couldn't get near them. So we gave up trying to make friends with them and simply sat around on the smooth rocks in our bathing costumes, enjoying the lovely sun. The manly lover was filling his pipe. I happened to be watching him as he carefully packed the tobacco into the bowl with a, from a yellow oilskin pouch. He had just finished doing this and was just about to light up when the ancient half-sister called on him to come swimming. So he put down the pipe and off he went. I stared at the pipe that was lying there on the rocks. About 12 inches away from it, I saw a little heap of dried goat droppings, each one small and round, like a pale brown berry. And at that point, an interesting idea began to sprout in my mind. I picked up the pipe and knocked all the tobacco out of it. I then took the goat's droppings and teased them with my fingers until they were nicely shredded. Very gently, I poured these shredded droppings into the bowl of the pipe, packed them down with my thumb, just as the manly lover always did it. When that was done, I placed a thin layer of real tobacco over the top. The entire family was watching me as I did this. Nobody said a word, but I could sense a glow of approval all around. I replaced the pipe on the rock, and all of us sat back to await the return of the victim. The whole lot of us were in this together now, even my mother. I'd drawn them into the plot simply by letting them see what I was doing. It was a silent, rather dangerous family conspiracy. Back came the manly lover, dripping wet from the sea, chest out, strong and virile, healthy and sunburnt. Great swim, he announced to the world. Splendid water, terrific stuff. He tolled himself vigorously, making the muscles of his biceps ripple. Then he sat down on the rocks and reached for his pipe. Nine pairs of eyes watched him intently. Nobody giggled to give the game away. We were trembling with anticipation and a good deal of the suspense was caused by the fact that none of us knew just what was going to happen. The manly lover put the pipe between his strong white teeth and struck a match. He held the flame over the bowl and sucked. The tobacco ignited and glowed and the lover's head was enveloped in clouds of blue smoke. Ah, he said, blowing smoke through his nostrils. There's nothing like a good pipe after a bracing swim. Still we waited. We could hardly bear the suspense. The sister, who was seven, couldn't bear it at all. What sort of tobacco do you put in that thing, she asked with superb innocence. Navy cut, the male lover answered. Players, navy cut. It's the best there is. These Norwegians use all sorts of disgusting scented tobaccos, but I wouldn't touch them. I didn't know they had different tastes. The small sister went on. Of course they do, the manny lover said. All tobaccos are different to the 
discriminating pipe smoker. Navy Cut is clean and unadulterated. It's a man's smoke. The man seemed to go out of his way to use long words like discriminating and unadulterated. We hadn't the foggiest what they meant. The ancient half-sister, fresh from her swim and now clothed in a tall bathrobe, came and sat herself close to her manly lover. Then the two of them started giving each other those silly little glances and soppy smiles that made us all feel sick. They were far too occupied with one another to notice the awful tension that had settled over our group. They didn't even notice that for that every face in the crowd was turned towards them. They had sunk once again into their lover's world where little children did not exist. The sea was calm, the sun was shining and it was a beautiful day. Then all of a sudden the manly lover let out a piercing scream and his whole body shot four feet into the air. His pipe flew out of his mouth and went clattering over the rocks and the second scream he gave was so shrill and loud that all the seagulls on the island rose up in alarm. His features were twisted like those of a person undergoing severe torture and his skin had turned the colour of snow. He began spluttering and choking and spewing and hawking and acting generally like a man with some serious internal injury. He was completely speechless. We started him, enthralled. The ancient half-sister, who must have thought she was about to lose her future husband forever, was pawing at him and thumping him on the back and crying, Darling, darling, what's happening to you? Where does it hurt? Get the boat, start the engine. We must rush him to a hospital quickly. She seemed to have forgotten that there wasn't a hospital within 50 miles. I've been poisoned, spluttered the manly lover. It's got into my lungs, it's in my chest. My chest is on fire. My stomach's gone up in flames. Help me get him to the boat quick, cried the ancient half-sister gripping him under the armpits. Don't just sit there stirring. Come and help. No, 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 cried the now not-so-manly lover. Leave me alone. I need air. Give me air. He lay back and breathed in deep draughts of splendid Norwegian ocean air, and in another minute or so he was sitting up again and was on his way to recovery. What in the world came over you? asked the ancient half-sister, clasping his hands tenderly in hers. I can't imagine, he murmured. I simply can't imagine. His face was a was as still and as white as virgin snow and his hands were trembling. There must have been a reason for it, he added. There's got to be a reason. I know the reason, shouted the seven-year-old sister, screaming with laughter. I know what it is. What was it? snapped the ancient one. What have you been up to? Tell me at once. It's his pipe, shouted the small sister, still convulsed with laughter. What's wrong with my pipe? said the manly lover. You've been smoking goat's tobacco, cried the small sister. It took a few moments for the full meaning of these words to dawn upon the two lovers. But when it did, and when the terrible anger began to show itself on the manly lover's face, and when he started to rise slowly and mechanically to his feet, we all sprang up and ran for our lives, and jumped off the rocks into the deep water.